What is up, Substance? Make some noise wherever you are at. You made it. Look at you. And especially today, you are going to be so glad you are in church because we are in First Comes Love, our teaching series on, on love, marriage, dating, the whole fun thing of the birds and the bees. Which, speaking of which, as one last little warning, today's message is PG-13. And, and, you know, I don't even know what that means anymore. What is PG-13? I don't even know. Well, I, I just, hey, if you've got kids who are maybe uh, younger or sensitive and uh, haven't had the magical conversation with those kids, just, I just wanted to make sure that we didn't force you to have it later today. What did the pastor mean when he said? Okay, I just didn't, you know, we just wanted to honor that and make sure that you're good there. I'll, I'll never forget when my daughter was five years old. Uh, she, we were walking, it, it was grandpa, me, and my five-year-old daughter, who is cute as can be at the Mall of America, and we were walking hand in hand. I was holding her one hand, and grandpa was holding her other hand. And she goes, and she goes, Daddy, I wanna have a baby. And she said, this is actually what she looked like, just to show you, just like, oh, oh my gosh, she's married now. But I, I just, and, uh, and she goes, Daddy, I want to have a baby. If I wanted to have a baby, how would I do it? And she looks at me and I'm like, you know what? Your grandpa has a great answer for that. <laughs> and so she looks at her grandpa and she's like, really, grandpa? And then my dad just kind of laughs. <laughs> and then he goes, your dad is the great teacher. And then she goes, and then she looks back at me like, Daddy, for real? Like, what, what? if I want to have a baby, what would I do? And of course, I just kind of like froze. I, I literally, you know, I mean, I, we're at the Mall of America. I was not ready for this. And I, I just, you know, and, and uh, you know, here's the secret. Parents, if your kids ever ask you a question that you are not ready to answer, here's the secret. You're going to want to write this down. All you have to do is give them an answer that bores them to death. Okay, so this is what I did. I'm like, well, listen, if I wanted to have a baby, the first thing I would do is I would pray about it. And I would pray about it. And here, there's all sorts of types of prayer. There's intercessory prayer. There's, <laughs> there's uh, and then there, there, there's, you know, and then, and then maybe after talking about prayer for a while, then I was like, and then I would find a mentor. And there's like five types of mentors. <laughs> that you might want about parenting mentors and there's role modeling mentors. And, and then after a while, you're like, oh look, it's Build-A-Bear Workshop. <laughs> you see how that works? It's really quite uh, effective. Uh, you know, and I, I and, and to this day, my daughter has always had a lot of prayer and mentoring. <laughs> it worked, you guys, it was, it worked. Okay, no, but for real, I, you know, I, I a lot of times there's these topics that are hard to talk about, but I think they're so important to talk about it. And I just, hey, listen, even the things that I share today, you don't even have to agree with me, but I do want to open up a little bit of soul tension so that you guys will actually have a little more motivation to kind of deal with some of these topics. Because I, I really think that your kids actually need, they're hearing about it whether or not you think they are. And I, I, there's so many elements of this that I think are so important to talk about. And if you can't talk about it here yet, I don't know where you're going to talk about it. And so we've been hitting this idea called the focus principle. Feelings follow focus. And it's really this idea that the more you treasure something, 
with time, energy, attention, the more you want it, okay? And it's not just a, a, uh, a principle that's proven time and time again through psychology research and other things that I'm about to show you today. It's really based on biblical teaching. It's all throughout the scripture. And for example, Jesus himself said, where your treasure is, there your heart follows. There's a, your feelings are following your focus. Your affections are going in the direction of the things that you are treasuring. And if you're treasuring your job more than your marriage, guess what? You're gonna, your pleasure from your job and your desire for your job is actually gonna eclipse your marriage. That's just, if feelings follow focus. Same thing with kids. Uh, if you have a kid-centric home, your desire for your kids and your priorities for your kids are going to outweigh your priority for your marriage. This works with almost any different area in your life. If you nurture something on a regular basis, your desire for it and your pleasure from it will increase, okay? Does that make sense, everybody? I, you know, there's this classic story about a, a man named Thomas who had been married. He'd only been married for about three years, and yet the fun was already wearing off for him. This was, marriage was not what he thought it would be, and he's in that moment where he's having the revelation, and it was just way more stressful than he anticipated, and of course, their intimacy life had taken a nosedive after they got married. He, he was starting to wonder, you know, like, did I marry the wrong person? person? Was this marriage a mistake? What if all marriage is a mistake? You know, he was just like, he was lost in his thoughts. And over time, he actually became convinced, you know what? Marriage is a mistake. And I, I'm just maybe not supposed to be married. And I definitely want a divorce. But his wife was kind of traditional. He knew his wife would never agree to this and she was going to fight it. And so he became obsessed with the question, how do I convince her that divorce is the best option for us? How do I convince her we made a giant mistake and we need to undo this immediately. And so uh, as a part of this process, he decided to go to a psychologist because, you know, who would better, who would know better how to, you know, get her to agree with me than a psychologist? Like, give me some psychological tips. And so he went to the psychologist and he, he, he said, hey, I already know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to get divorced. I just need to convince my wife to agree with this. And so what are some tips to, to get my wife to agree with me here? What do I need to do to get her to hate my guts so so she will accept this divorce. And of course, the psychologist asked him a few questions, dug a little deeper, and then he's like, you know what, Tom? I think I have the perfect solution for you, but it's kind of devious and counterintuitive. Do you think you can handle that? And, and, and of course, Thomas is like, are you kidding? I'm, devious is my middle name. Help me, doctor. You know what I'm saying? And, and so the doctor was like, well, okay, this is what you gotta do. Here's, the, here's again, it's devious, counterintuitive, but starting tonight... When you get home, I want you to start treating your wife as though she was a goddess. And he looks, and he looked a little confused. Thomas is like, huh? He's like, yeah, you heard me right. I want you to treat her like she was a goddess, like, like she was a famous celebrity that everyone loves and everybody wants to be with. I want you to change your attitude towards her 180, just 180 degrees. Start doing everything in your power to please her. Like, like for example, listen intently when she talks about her problems. I want you to help around the home. Don't wait for her to ask, just go out and do it. I want you to take her out to dinner. I want you to literally pretend she is a goddess. And then here's the twist, okay? After two months of this wonderful behavior, this is what you need to do. Just pack your bags and leave. Just pew. 
She will be so confused. She will feel so betrayed. She will think you're crazy and she will say, yeah, I'm ready to be done myself. And it's all gonna be just like you want, Thomas. And, and Thomas was like, wow, that is really kind of devious and counterintuitive. Yet, you know, it's crazy enough to my work, that it might work. Okay, I'll do it. And so that night, that's exactly what he did. He went home and, and, and just, he, he treated his wife as though she were a goddess. Like he couldn't wait to do things for her. I mean, breakfast in bed, check. Flowers for no apparent reason, check. I mean, th within three weeks, he already logged two romantic getaways. He even started reading books to her, her favorite books, not his. And then like, I mean, everything. And it, it was just, it was almost like, and believe it or not, he kept that up for two full months. It was incredible how committed he was to this process. Well, finally, over time, the, the psychologist gave Tom a, a three-month follow-up call at work. He just wanted to call him up, see how things were going, and he's like, what's up, Tom? How's the divorce going, man? Are you a happy bachelor once again? And, and Tom was quiet on the other end, and he goes, divorce? Are you kidding me? I'm married to a goddess. I've never been happier in my life. Now, that cheesy, silly little story is, is really just the moral of it is this. Feelings follow focus. Where your treasure is, there your heart follows. Believe it or not, you can wield your emotions. You can wield your attractions. And just like everything, listen, emotions are a cyclical thing like the seasons, but ultimately they will go in the direction of where our treasure is, where our focus is. Now, the reason why this is so important is because for much of the last century, uh, people imagined that genetics played a much larger role in shaping our feelings and attractions than, than actually the current research has shown. In fact, there's a huge amount of research on habits and habit loops, as well as social surroundings that are proving that actually your social surrounding and your habit loops are actually a significantly greater predictor of your affections. And, and this is particularly true, actually, what was fascinating, there's been all this research into the science of pornography in the last couple, in the last decade, really. And, and part of the reason why it's important is because um, people now have... 10 times the access to it than they did even just like two, three decades ago. It may be hard to comprehend this, but did you know that, that Americans spend more money on porn than they do on all major sports, NFL, MLB, NHL combined? Did you know that? That the revenues are actually higher than Amazon, higher than Apple? Um, it's hard to believe because, again, it's not a single corporation making all the money, but uh, again, there's more exposure to pornography than ever before in the history of planet Earth. Many of you guys know that 12 and 13-year-olds are now the largest consumer group of internet porn. Okay, so in case you're wondering, people are being exposed to it. Uh, actually, first exposure is happening now, sometimes at seven, eight. 
And uh, the stats on this are quite shocking. And the reason why this matters and it's devastating is because early porn exposure has a huge correlation with increases in rape. Okay, actually there's an unprecedented number of, of people who've experienced rape globally. It's higher than it's ever been in all of recorded history. The same thing is true with, with pedophilia and, and child trafficking. Did you know that one out of five, uh, one out of 20% of online porn is actually trafficked kids? that are forced to do it against their will. I mean, I know these facts are hard to ingest, but I, I'm leading you somewhere with all of this that is super important because it does affect how we think about our marriages, how we think about our own desires, how we even think about how we parent and how we date, okay? And just take this in for a second, okay? Um, People who use porn have significantly higher odds of depression, violence, sexual discontentment, eating disorders, anger, and dissatisfaction with their partners. And every one of those words has multiple major university studies behind them. And I encourage you, just check it out at my blog, peterhaas.org. Uh, just type in 50 Shades of Truth. Or I, I also have another whole, basically a book worth of blogs on this kind of stuff. Just go Peter Haas, fix me. And it shows up. I Originally it said Peter Haas and sex. And then I realized I don't want anybody Googling that. Okay, that won't. <laughs> Just don't ever, I don't even want to know what will show up. But just uh, peterhaas.org, uh, 50 Shades. And, uh, you know, listen, I, I, I say all this. I also, in 2018, I did a sermon series called Address the Mess. So late 2018, Address the Mess. If you want to hear a lot more about this kind of stuff, just check that out. But I, I'm going somewhere with this and just keep sticking with me. I've got this friend who's got his PhD in psychology, but he specializes in the neurochemistry of sex addiction and the neurochemistry of sexual fetishes. And, and there was this really uh, interesting guy who came to him who was exclusively attracted to, to one-legged women, uh, women with one leg, which was a problem because his wife had two legs. And uh, I know that sounds really strange, okay? Just, just stick with me, okay? Uh, this is about as intense as the message gets, okay? So it's as awkward as it's gonna get, okay? So it's only gonna get easier from here, okay? So now it sounds really strange, but when he was a teenager, he discovered a pornographic picture at the bus stop and it was just a, a printed pornographic picture with the corner ripped off and it happened to be that part of her leg. So she's missing one of her legs and all of his earliest fantasies uh, we're over this picture, and over time, he developed this unique addiction where his, his sexual attraction was almost entirely conditioned on a need for finding one-legged women, and uh, was obviously devastating to his marriage, which is why he came in. Now, the reason why I share that sta strange story is because it actually is an illustration of how, actually, how pornography actually works. It neurologically attaches us, addicts us, to body shapes and circumstances that are different than our spouse, that go outside of God's parameters or that create unsustainable realities that are inevitably going to lead to disappointment. And I say this because God actually designed our bodies, designed our brains in such a way where a singular person, your spouse, would be the exclusive source of your sexual input. And that if you would, if, if they were exclusively your input, 
It doesn't matter if they were big, small, short, or tall, you would eventually become exclusively addicted to, their, to your spouse and their body shape, okay? And their reality, real intimacy, not false intimacy, not your imagined version of your spouse, but your spouse, okay? Now, the reason why I point this out is because the research, if I was to distill it into a simple little formula, it's this, your eyes plus dopamine, neurotransmitters, affect attraction, okay? And science shows that even, get this, this is how, this is how strange it is. Science shows that when a, per, a person is married to another person for a long time, say 30, 40 years, they often become exclusively attracted to their spouse's eye colors. Like if they were to rate eye colors, they'll always pick the most attractive eye color is the one that their spouse has. Okay, so that, that you're, it shows the visual component and how God actually designed our brains. It's actually quite amazing when you think about it, that God designed our emotions to implicitly align with our spouse's unless we sabotage that mechanism, okay? Now, and, and that's actually what pornography does is it creates an unsustainable set of circumstances that nobody can fulfill, which is why, ironically, this is the weirdest stat ever, 75% of chronic porn addicts eventually stop having intimacy with their spouse. In other words, it's just not even worth having. It's, it's easier for them to participate in false intimacy, and Why? because they have this neurological shortcut that has, has, has changed that attraction mechanism. And, 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 it, and it becomes, it's no longer a circumstantial problem, it's, it's actually a spiritual problem, it's an internal problem, it's a, it's a habit loop problem, it's a, a focus problem. Feelings follow focus, okay? Now, in a, sim, a similar way, let me just kinda scale this back. If you're out there and you're single today, you know, I, I've had a lot of single Christian men come up to me and they, they, they say something like this. Like, Pastor Peter, I, I'm really struggling with, with something to do with sex or pornography. And they're like, if only I was married, I just know if I had access to intimacy, then I would no longer struggle with this. And of course, I'm always like, false that is not true at all. In fact, if I can assure you one thing, if you're a lusty flirt before you get married, guess what? You're gonna be a lusty flirt after you get married. Marriage is not gonna change your character problems. And actually, that, just if I could say that again, marriage doesn't change your character problems, but I can guarantee it will amplify and reveal them, because that's what intimacy does. It doesn't change, circumstances don't change character. Do you see why that works, okay? And yet we, we think they do, but they don't, okay? And, and so at some point, all of us are gonna have to renew our minds in order to test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will, Romans 12, 2. At some point, all of us are gonna have to go through lust withdrawal. I, I hear married men say, if I could just get my spouse to act more like this, then I won't struggle. False. Women will say, oh, if I could just get my husband to act more romantic, then I won't struggle. False. Or, or if I could just switch my spouse, or maybe if I could even just get a spouse, then it won't, I won't struggle with this. No, listen to me. Lust will never be satisfied through a circumstantial solution. It is a focus 
solution. It is a treasuring solution, something that we need to deal with in our hearts. And the same thing is true about not just even sexuality, but anything. I mean, your desire for prayer and scripture. There's, there's something you need to focus on, a change of focus, which is why Jesus talked about it so much. And, and here's the deal, okay? If you're here today, I do not want any of you to feel condemned or ashamed because the truth is we are all broken. And way more of a struggle with it than people think. Every single week somebody comes to me and they're so nervous to confess it as though they're the only human on planet Earth that could possibly struggle with it. And let me just tell you, here's the research, okay? 88% of men struggle with it. And you know what we say about the other 12%? They're liars. No, I'm kidding. There, there's probably people that don't struggle with it. But everybody struggles with something. We're all broken, right? 30% of, of online porn consumers are women. Okay, so this isn't even a gender issue anymore. And I, I say this because, listen, church, this is why we do things like the Freedom Course here at Substance. We have hundreds of people who just go through and they, they learn about freedom in multiple areas of their lives. It's why we have hundreds of guys that get together in accountability group. We have hundreds of women that get together in accountability groups to help them deal with their issues. All of us have desires that are not taking us where we want them to go. And maybe for you it has nothing to do with porn, but it's, it's food or it's, it's shopping or it's snack cakes. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. All of us have desires that are not taking us where we wanna go. And that's what Jesus was trying to help with when he said this in Matthew 6, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. And remember, this is before electricity, okay? So light came from this one device. The eye is the illuminator of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, well, how great is that darkness? In other words, in the context, Jesus was actually talking about, particularly about money, focusing on money versus other things. But really, it's a, it's a transcendent principle here, church, that could apply to almost anything. Jesus is saying, your eyes are your focus. And actually, this is the same context in which he said, whatever your treasure is, that's where your heart is going. If, if our focus is bad, it just, it starts with this darkness, this confusion, this aimlessness, this directionlessness that eventually will lead us to a, a dualistic attraction, a crossroads that's going to be devastating because this is where it leads to. It leads to two masters. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You're gonna be like any addict where they have to say, you know, am I gonna choose alcohol or am I gonna choose friends? Am I gonna choose pornography, fake intimacy or am I gonna choose real intimacy, actually have tough conversations with my spouse? Am I gonna choose my career or am I gonna choose my kids? My career has more immediate fulfilling metrics than, you know, my kids. How do you measure whether or not you're being good as a parent you have to measure it in more like five-year increments. But at my job, they, you know, it's sales. I can immediately get a promotion. Or am I going to have self-centeredness or self-actualization? You see, all of us, there's, a, there's an endless list of masters that we could probably list here that are not very fun to serve. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, if you don't decide, you're going to slide. You'll slide into the wrong master, and you won't even realize it until after you're a slave. And that is why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, which we talked about two weeks ago, guard your affections for it is the wellspring of our lives. 
we got to guard that. Guard your focus. Guard your treasure. And, and uh, you know, this is kind of the weird, discouraging encouragement here right now. It's this. All of us have something awkward. Okay, that's something. Just look around this room and just turn to your neighbor and say, you're awkward. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's true. You're awkward. Whether they admit it, some of you are like, I'm not looking at my neighbor. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay to be, sit there awkwardly. I just wanted you to feel awkward. Why? Because we're all awkward. We all have awkward. In fact, awkward is not wrong. It's, the, it's not wrong to have awkward, okay? All of us have it. The question is not, do we have awkward? Because you do, and your family knows you do, okay? Really, the question that I want you to ask is, are you taking your awkward seriously? We all have it. But some of us are actually in denial of it, and some of us, or we, we acknowledge it, but we're not really taking it serious. That's the real issue here, and that's what I want you to think about today. Because here's where it gets kind of tricky. For a lot of people, we're not acknowledging our awkward. In fact, some of us, we've lived in awkward for so long that we actually think our awkward is normal. Well, everybody's we start justifying our awkward as normal. Like for example, some of you, you think it's normal to wear Croc shoes. <laughs> it's, I get it, they're the most comfortable things I've ever put on my feet ever, but come on, they're awkward, okay? And yet that awkward has become normal. It's okay to wear them, just admit it. Admit they're awkward, right? Some of us, we were raised in awkward and we actually thought it was normal, but we didn't realize it wasn't normal until we met someone, started dating them, and they're like, what? Like I remember growing up in central Wisconsin, my parents, we had bratwurst, Johnsonville bratwurst, four days every single week. I thought that was normal. I thought it was just normal to have bratwurst all the time. They would reheat the bratwurst for three of those days. I thought that was normal. I didn't realize how weird my parents were until I met my wife and she's like, what? Like, what do you do? Like, did you just reheat French fries? Oh my gosh, what the? I thought that was normal. You know what I'm saying? You see, intimacy will reveal your awkward, but some of us, we're not acknowledging it, okay? And, uh, you know, all jokes aside, I, I think for some people, our awkward has become overly normal, right? We, we think it's normal to have credit card debt, even though it is the worst kind of debt you could possibly have, and there's a thousand better solutions than that. We think it's normal to have a child-centric home where we basically don't even relate to our spouses anymore, and, and we do do all sorts of things that are just bad priorities. We think it's normal to prioritize careers over kids. And there's all sorts of awkward things that have unfortunately become normal, but we're not acknowledging all of the side effects that statistically spin out of those types of priorities, okay? Let me just give you an example, okay? Uh, did, right now, research shows the average American couple has, has intimacy about twice a week, okay? That's just an average according to research. The average couple has the special thing uh, about twice a week, okay? Now, that, that means for some people um, that are on the high side, that means they're very active, okay? And then there's people on the other side who are not so active, okay? Now, I, I point that out because 
just, I'm just trying to give you a statistical average, okay? It's just an average. I'm not even, let's not even talk about right and wrong. Let's just talk about average, okay? Now, uh, some married couples think it's normal to go entire months without it. But you're, what you don't realize is actually you're a one percenter, okay? It's actually not normal. And, and, and fortunately, a lot of us have a one percenter kind of thing that is actually way more extreme than we realize. And we're not realizing how that extreme way of living is actually affecting our spouse. We don't see it as a burden. Why? Because it's normal to us. We don't see how it's affecting our kids. We're not seeing how it's affecting all sorts of things. And I, I bring that out to say, let's not even talk about right and wrong. Let's just talk about where are we all extreme, okay? All of us have an area of our lives where we're actually a one percenter and we think it's normal. But all I'm saying is if we don't acknowledge those things where we're kind of extreme, guess what, we're gonna get confused when those extreme habits start causing extreme behaviors in our marriages and in our kids. And let me tell you, awkward always multiplies into more awkward. A lot of times, again, we're, we're, we're participating in a cycle of awkward that if we don't stop and acknowledge these things, it's not gonna get better. And again, there's no condemnation here, okay? I, I have awkward too, and if we all sat down with one another long enough, we'd eventually identify each other's awkward. It's called small groups. <laughs> Some of you are like, that is exactly why I don't go to small groups. Well, listen, listen. I get it, it can be hard to look into the mirror and have intimacy with other people, but I, I'm telling you, it's actually the most liberating place to be is to acknowledge it and to admit it and to get more comfortable talking about it. And again, it's not bad to have awkward, it's only bad if we were in denial of it and we're not taking it serious, okay? And so just to model vulnerability, what I'm gonna do both this week and then my wife is gonna do this next week, is we're gonna model vulnerability by sharing some of the awkward in our lives. And, and the hope is that you guys would have, you'd feel more permission to admit and acknowledge your awkward, okay? Now, um, so for, for me, for many years, if I could say that, if I could share part of my awkward, is I was refusing to deal with my mental health issues for many, many years, okay? Many of you guys know that I have ADHD, which means I have an inability to turn off my self-reflection. Like if you were to, you know, what is ADHD? It's an inability to turn off self-reflection, okay? So uh, basically, scientifically, if you were to describe it, ADHD is where you, you have a, a large lack of dopamine and you have a small neuro pipeline called the vermis. It's like a little highway down the center of your brain, which is a little smaller, and because it's smaller and because you have less dopamine, it causes you to daydream a lot or brood a lot, okay? I'm always thinking about the future or the past. You could be talking to me and, and I for 10 minutes, and I won't remember a single word you said. Why? Because I was thinking about the last 12 books that I read all at the same time and dreaming about my next 12 books that I'm about to read. You know what I'm saying? It's just chaos, Okay, now, so, and vermis is kind of weird. It sounds like a rodent, and I don't know why it's called that, but I just, again, I, unfortunately, I have a small one. And uh, now, in circumstances, it can actually be a very great thing, right? Because it makes me divergent. 
ADHD makes me a creative problem solver. I am more innovative than the general population. It also means I have a terrible short-term memory and it means that I'm kind of moody. Guess what? Comedians and incarcerated criminals have one thing in common, we're all more ADHD. Okay, so you get good and bad, you know what I'm saying? Like I, I just, it, it's just a reality. In fact, in part of it is because it's like having a Ferrari brain with bicycle brakes, okay? It's hard to control. And so, uh, but okay, so for years though, I thought maybe I struggle with major depressive disorder, right? Because it, it can, it can kind of get confused with that. Or another thing is a lot of times, um, bi- it pre- ADHD presents itself like bipolar disorder, uh, the, where, where you have extreme moods. Now, the, the difference between ADHD and, and bipolar is that instead of the roller coaster lasting like several weeks and then dipping for several weeks and then up for several weeks, uh, with ADHD, it is an hour to hour roller coaster like this. <laughs> it's awesome. It's a thrill ride if you're married to someone like this. And it's just, it's constant. I, yeah, I might get depressed in five minutes, but guess what? I can get encouraged in five minutes too. It's awesome. So now I, I, I share all this because, you know, I, I, here's where it became problematic for my marriage is I was in denial of it for years, which caused a lot of stress on my wife, probably more stress than I cared to admit. And um, part of it was because I, again, I honestly didn't believe I had it. And yeah, I paced a lot. My staff would make fun of me that you have ADHD because I can't sit still for a meeting to save my life. I have to do laps around the table like I'm uh, uh, in track and field in the boardroom. But, and, and I knew that, I knew that. And yeah, I get emotional, but you know what? I kept thinking there's no way I have it because I can sit down and read a boring book for seven hours straight right, which didn't strike me as ADHD. Actually, it turned out to be a big symptom of ADHD, right? Hyperfocus is a a common symptom of ADHD. And of course, here's what happened. Over time, two of my three kids ended up getting diagnosed with it from random, for random reasons. And so I started reading up about it for their sake, not for mine, because I'm not, I don't got it, right? But I'm going to read up for my kids because I care about them. And so I started reading about it and uh, I discovered what was really funny is I was reading all this research on it and and I found out that if two or more of your kids has it, there's a 66% genetic chance that one of the parents also have it. And so I was like, wow, I I wouldn't have thought Carolyn had ADHD. (laughs) Said no one ever, okay? It was not a surprise. When I read that, I was like, okay, guilty. You know what I'm saying? Like, I knew it, right? And and so I, just for kicks, I just did all the tests. And man, I had no idea how many more tests there were. I mean, it was like three days of testing and, you know, psychological examinations. And, you know, uh, they opened up my brain and all that kind of stuff. Now, uh, it's way more thorough than it was five years ago, which is good. And yes, I officially had it. But again, who cares? Because I'm not going to do anything about it. That was just where I was at, okay? And, And part of it... If a uh, part of it, if I was fully honest, a couple decades ago, I, I happen to know they used to way overly diagnose this in people. I mean, pull, people could say that people had it when they didn't have it, and, and the testing was terrible, and then they'd over-medicate kids, and, and I kept thinking, the last thing I'm going to do is put another toxic substance in my body. I'm complex as it is. I am not going to do it, and if I even have it, I'm just going to deal with it holistically. I'm going to shower in essential oils. I'm just going to, you know, ingest magic prunes, and suddenly I'm good. You know what I'm saying? Carolyn, it's no problem. I'm cured, Carolyn. You don't ever have to worry about me ever again. 
Okay, if I was truly, to be honest, holistic stuff was just my way of living in denial. I'm not saying it's bad. There's actually a lot of holistic stuff that's brilliant. But I, for me, it was my way of living in denial. And I knew deep in my heart, I had already read it, less than 20% of the population with this problem will respond to anything other than a pharmaceutical option. And frankly, I just didn't want to admit that. I didn't want to look at those things. I only wanted to find things that confirmed my bias. And I didn't want to see how profoundly it was affecting me or my marriage or my wife or my kids, and it, frankly, it was kind of just easier to make everybody around me carry the burden instead of me doing it. And it, frankly, it would have almost been too painful for me to start facing my 1%, my awkward, if you know what I mean. But really what started hitting me was the fact that I could see that my son was really struggling with his side effects from ADHD, but because I wasn't willing to help me, I wasn't able to help him. Are you hearing me? Awkward ends up spinning out in, in families. And many of you guys might remember, I, I got a serious spinal injury doing freestyle BMX a few years back. And uh, after I injured my spine, I lost all feeling in my arms for months and um, almost paralyzed myself. And uh, for months I kept asking myself, oh God, why am I so dumb? Why am I so dumb? Why, I'm the only guy who's been married 30 years who still does freestyle BMX. You know what I'm saying? Like, why am I so, why would I, why do I take such big risks? Especially, I mean, like, God, why do I do these things? I mean, I could have, I could have fundamentally altered our church. And, 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 you know, the Lord was like, come on, Peter. It's not that you're dumb, but you do have a lack of dopamine that you're living in denial of. And you are going to medicate one way or another. You are going to do it. And, and, and in the coming months, as I just reflected on, on, on how I was, you know, taking all these risks, I kept having all these childhood memories where actually my ADHD got into trouble. Things that I didn't even remember until all of a sudden after my spinal injury, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I started a fight with that one kid. Oh yeah, that's right. I almost got kicked out of second grade. Oh, and third grade, and fourth grade, and fifth grade, and sixth grade. Wow! I never put it together. I don't know why I didn't think that way. It was like in my mind, I started, it was like God was revealing all sorts of things to me and all the, all, all the decisions that I had made. And, then, and so then I, I started reading up about it just out of concern for my own kids. I found a disturbing stat on parenting uh, an ADHD kid. ADHD teens, ADHD teens whose parents won't allow them to medicate. Listen to this. They have dramatically higher risks of suicide. I thought, well, that's not good, like really high. 300% higher likelihood of drug abuse in teenagers whose parents won't allow them to medicate. They have significantly higher porn addiction and, and sexual risk taking. In other words, they're gonna medicate either way. Uh, they're two times as likely to experiment with same-sex attraction, two times as likely to drop out of school, and I, I just kept two times as likely to have affairs. I just was reading through all this data on, on that just came out in the last two, three years. And I, I, if I could be honest, church, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. It almost felt like God was playing back my life And I, when I read these stats and I saw all these dark moments in my life where God had unnaturally rescued me. And I felt like the Lord just kind of spoke to me in that season. Peter, don't allow your kids to run through 
this gauntlet simply because of your fears. Deal with your awkward so you can help them deal with theirs. And, and, and so I finally relented with my son. We allowed him to take some meds for this. And almost immediately, he shot up to the high honor roll. It was almost bizarre. It was like his video gaming just suddenly plummeted. And his, you know, his ability to study, it was almost weird um, watching him. And finally, you know, Carolyn was like, okay, Peter, did you notice that? You know, and I was like, okay, 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 fine. I'll, I'll be open, open. And I, I started actually exploring it myself and, and uh, I actually got medication. I actually did figure it out. And looking back, if I could just be honest with you, uh, all I feel is embarrassment. Like, why did it take so long? Why? What was it in me that I wasn't willing to deal with I found myself constantly apologizing to my wife in the coming months. Like, I am so sorry that you had to endure all of my rants so many times over the years on that particular issue. And I, I just, and hear me out, church, okay? Because here's what, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I am not saying throw medications at your problems, okay? And then you're gonna be good. Because sometimes your awkward is the reverse. You're throwing medication at problems that should not actually be medicated. Your problem is the way you medicate, okay? So please don't hear me out to just say, oh, I'm pro-meds and blah, 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 okay? So remember, just, I, this, I'm just sharing my personal journey of how I dealt with it, okay? And I'm also not saying, when it comes to awkward, confront your spouse's awkward, okay? Because sometimes, actually, you, that's your awkward, is you think you're always focused on your family's awkward instead of your awkward, that's not gonna work well for you, I can promise you. That too is awkward. All I'm saying is look inwardly, admit it, and start taking it serious. Just explore it, get counselors. And so what is it for you? Here it is, we all have types of awkward. There's a million types of sexual awkward, mental health awkward. Some of you, I'm just gonna say it, you have an irrational fear of doctors. And, and some of you, it might be justified. You literally had a doctor abuse you, okay? Deal with that. Deal with that. Same thing with therapists. It always shocks me how many people refuse to see a therapist. I'm kind of like, would you refuse to change the oil on your car? I mean, refuse to fill it with gas because you had a bad experience at a gas station? Well, some of you, you don't change the oil on your car, and that is a problem. But I, I just, again don't get rid of normal, just figure it out. Well, what was it? You don't have to like all therapists. Some of them are awful. It's okay, admit it. Just, or, or medication, same thing. Financial awkward, food awkward, weight awkward. Some of you, you think it's inevitable. You just think this is like, oh, this is as good as it gets. No, it is not true. Insecurity awkward, fear awkward, rejection awkward, child-centric awkward. You think it's normal to obsess over your kids to such a degree where you don't really have a marriage anymore. It's just a co-management or a co-coach uh, for your kids. Or my, my, the most interesting kind of awkward, and I think the one that a lot of Christians struggle with more, is what I call unexpected awkward. You were normal until, boom, somebody close to you died, and then you're like, ah, you're deconstructing, you know, theologic, God didn't do what I wanted, you know what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden, you know, you got fired from your job that you never thought you would lose, and it puts you into an identity crisis, or maybe infertility causes people to kind of get, go into a tailspin or a diagnosis that they never thought, maybe God isn't real, maybe God isn't faithful, maybe God doesn't love me, as though somehow, you know, pain, you know, 
causes God to not exist all of a sudden. Come on, people. Actually, your theology was always bad. It just took a circumstance to reveal it. You hear what I'm saying? God isn't changing, but again, sometimes I think God even allows these things so that we would deal with our awkward. But don't wait until a crisis to deal with your awkward. You can start now. Again, pain is not an option. You either have the pain of prevention or the pain of regret. Let me tell you, this one is way easier, way easier. And here's the good news in all of this. God is at work within you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. All you gotta do is acknowledge your awkward and say, God, you're better at living my life than I am and surrender to him and be willing to walk into those painful areas of your life and explore them. Go to a counselor, go to a therapist, go to your small group. Let that, look in that mirror and when you feel lost and when you feel scared, run to these three graces that God gives us, a grace of a small group, his church. Get around healthy people who can hold that mirror even if you don't like it. Teachability is the ability to relearn that which you already know, and it usually requires a little bit of humility in order to do it. Do it. It's worth it. And then get that reliable ancient roadmap called his word. Get something that lasts. Don't just get Dr. Phil. I mean, not that Dr. Phil doesn't have insights, but just, again, let, let it be based on his word, and then, and then let God speak to you through his church and his word, and then finally, the, the gentle mirror of the Holy Spirit. Let his gentle conviction speak to you. And I'll tell you what, as embarrassing it is as it is to get real like this, I'm just saying that pain is temporary, but the pain of regret, man, that not only lingers, but it multiplies into your kids, it multiplies into your coworkers. And I just say, hey, listen, as your pastor, I want you to just take the easier path, which is face that pain. Don't run from your awkward, run to it. Run to it. The pain of prevention is always easier than the pain of regret. But would you trust him? I just sense that Father God is here today and he just has his arms outstretched and he's like, hey, listen, I knew about your awkward before you did. And I died for that awkward and purchased the grace to help lead you out of that. All I need you to do is run into my arms and receive my grace. Would you do that? And would you just close your eyes right here and now? Let's do business with God. Father, you see all of us are broken. All of us have desires that don't lead us where we want to go. And yet you are so graceful to us that you sent your son while we were still sinners, you died for us, Romans 5.8. And yet you have provision for us to deal with every last aspect of our physical bodies and our emotions. You've got provision. I pray that all of us would have the boldness to reach out, receive that provision, and allow it to truly change us into the people that you want us to be. Lord, make us into something we could not be on our own. And if you're out there today and you've never just officially given your life over to Christ, or maybe you have, but it's time for a reset, just pray this after me. Just say this, say, dear Jesus, forgive me, renew me, and lead me, starting today and for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love you guys. We're going to have some fun with this series. I know it's intense, but I, I believe it's going to be a good transformation.
relational intense where God's gonna speak to you, all right? With all that said, we're gonna have our campus pastors coming up. Tell us where we're gonna go next. Love you guys.